I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. With just the right amount of confidence and motivation, you can achieve almost anything, right? But what if you don't have that internalized driving force or self-worth? Could you borrow it from someone else? And is that temporary boost enough for sustained success? In this episode, I speak with Craig Harper, and we explore the psychology of motivation, both the power and manipulation of it. We unpack the difference between motivational speakers who are guiding us towards self-growth and change, and those who just use some good music, fancy words, and know how to light a temporary firework under someone's arse, leaving them dependent on the firework dealer. We also dive deep into the growing sport of the Trauma Olympics. That's right, I said the Trauma Olympics. And help you identify if you are accidentally a medalist. Let's get ready to rumble down under with Craig Harper. Craig Harper is one of Australia's leading presenters, writers, and educators in the areas of health, high performance, resilience, self-management, leadership, corporate change, communication, personal transformation, and broadly, human behavior. Craig has worked as an exercise scientist, corporate speaker and consultant, university lecturer, AFL conditioning coach, radio host, TV presenter, newspaper columnist, and successful business owner. He hosts a high-rating podcast called The You Project, is the author of seven books, and is currently completing a PhD in neuropsychology. Let's get this started. Craig, welcome to the Gently Used Human podcast. As one of my favorite gently used humans in this world, you've got a top podcast in Australia. You're a highly sought after speaker and lecturer, exercise scientist. You're the author of, I think, around 5, 10, 15, 20 books. I lost count after the first couple ones. You're finishing your PhD in neuropsychology. It's a shit ton of things you've done and accomplished in your lifetime. And I, I thought about starting with the question of, is there something actually called and real about overachieving? But I think actually a better question that I'd like to ask you is, what was the trauma that became the fuel of your life? Well, firstly, hi, Doc. Thank you for having me. It's nice to chat to you and your audience. When I think about what was my trauma, and then I compare it to people that I think had actual trauma, I feel guilty to talk about my trauma. But you only know what you know. But I, I think for me, because I was a morbidly obese kid. So when I was 14 years old, I was about 200 pounds and about five foot five. To put that in context, I'm probably about 180 now and about 5'10". So I was a really big kid. I had a moment in time and that was the year eight swimming sports where I spent every, when we had a swimming carnival in Australia, swimming carnivals are big. We're a big swimming nation, but- You mean swimming away from sharks? Swimming? No, this is this is in a swimming pool. This is in an oh. Olympic sized pool, but yeah, generally that's our other pastime, avoiding sharks. And shit that can kill you in general, which is mm. a lot of stuff here. So yeah, I, I just, every year when it was a swimming sports and swimming was compulsory. And the one thing when you're morbidly obese, you don't want to do is you don't want to stand, you don't want to stand on a swimming block in front of hundreds of students and parents and teachers when you hate your look, the way that you look and you don't want one person to see you, let alone a thousand. 
And so every year when it was my turn to swim, when my event came, I would go and hide because the swimming program needed to continue and they couldn't find me. So the event would happen without me. And I did this again in year eight. I'd done it successfully about five years in a row. My sports teacher saw me slinking off and dragged me back. And anyway, I had to swim and just, I just had this, this vivid memory, which I still have standing on. I think it was lane eight you know, with my ampleness cascading over my, what we call bathers here or swim trunks, whatever you call them, and just feeling incredibly exposed and vulnerable and humiliated and and ashamed. Like I felt ashamed of how I looked and what I, and, and, all, and I took total responsibility. Like I knew I had eaten myself into that spot, but but it's a bittersweet moment because that was really a catalyst. I think, you know, good things can come out of pain Malcolm Gladwell wrote The Tipping Point, and I think a lot of times we have an emotional and or psychological tipping point, which can become an aha moment and a platform to something something positive. And that that was for me. And so from there, I just, that kind of that moment in time catapulted me into training and exercise and fitness and self-awareness and nutrition. And yeah, but maybe without that moment, I wouldn't have done a lot of what I've done. Mm. When you talk about the shame that you experienced as a kid standing uh, on the, that block, is that in an internalization of the voices around you or the loudness of your internal voice that was the main culprit of that shame? Yeah, me. I, I hated myself so much. Or, or I hated how I looked, I should say. I hated my body. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. It, it's interesting. I look back and I feel sorry for that little boy now, but at that time when even back then in the 70s, like a million years ago now, but even then I'm 59, but even then there was still a, a lot of currency in what you looked like and and how popular or engaged you were still had something to do with your physical appearance and your athletic prowess. I, I grew up in a country town which was very, very sporting in terms of its focus. And if you were a good athlete, great. If you weren't, not so great. And if you look good, good, you know, and if you're in great shape, also good. And I was none of that. And so for me, my identity, I guess, was pretty much intertwined completely with how I looked and how I, how I was physiologically. Mm. As you share that story, I, I, my heart breaks because I think so many of us can, can relate to that young child who hates themselves and the fact that at such a young age we can learn hate not from the voices around us but by the creation and the manifestation of hatred from within mm. Mm. and it it baffles me where do we learn to self-hate it makes so much sense that we might learn to hate others xenophobic type of hatred we learn that from the modeling around us but is it an inherent part of our biology to self-hate? Where, where could we possibly have learned that? Yeah. Well, I think you're always, well, I was always looking for, I was wildly insecure. I was always looking for approval. Looking back, I, I don't feel sad about this. I feel almost guilty to talk about my childhood like it was hard compared to people who actually have hard childhoods. One of the things that they used to do in the old days, Doc, which was unbelievable, was put all the kids, stand all the kids 
in a line, essentially, we're playing football, Australian rules football or whatever we're playing. And you'd pick two captains and they would just pick members of their team. And I would regularly be the last person picked. Here's 40 kids to choose from. You're number 40. And essentially, it's almost like at the end, you have him. No, you have him. And where you just feel unwanted. And to be fair to them, I was the worst. So yeah. it's it's strategically, I understand it. I wouldn't have picked me either. Yeah. Um, but when but when you are that 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 remaining kind of person out there, yeah, you take all that on board. Yeah, you internalize the hell out of it. That type of rejection pain, you talk about that wasn't their intention. And I think this is such an important piece around trauma and hurt is that it doesn't have to be the intention of the the person or the peoples or the culture or the schools or the systems that created it. It's how does it land? How does it overwhelm or underwhelm our fragile system? Yeah. Craig, I adore you. And so I, part of me wants to stand up and be like, I, I hear you where perhaps if you compared your traumas, your history to other people, then on some type of level, it wasn't as bad. But that doesn't disqualify you from that, that young boy from the experience he had who didn't actually have that comparative model. And, and as adults, we have, oh, well, at least I wasn't in the war. Or, and, and it be, starts to become almost a trauma Olympics yeah, where I'm comparing to despairing. And, and that's just not the way our physiology fucking works. Our physiology doesn't work on a Olympic scale of comparison. It works on the impact that it simply has. And so I want to, I really want to honor that little kid. The other bit to the story that I didn't yeah. tell you was from about grade four. Yeah. I got called Jumbo. So most people didn't call me Craig. So even through to I, I lost a lot of weight and I started to get very fit after the, <laughs> the swimming saga. But even when I was in year 11 and 12 and I was a reasonably good athlete by then, I was fit, strong. I trained, literally trained more than anyone else in the school. And I just, just through work, turned myself into an ex-fat kid. But even then was funny because people just called me Jumbo and I was tall and lean. But that 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 just when I met new people, that's yeah. how I would be introduced by others. So as, as th- that kind of and and the funny thing was, it sounds terrible, but there wasn't a whole lot of malice in it. Like I was never really bullied. I was just identified as Jumbo because I was just Jumbo. I, I hear you really explaining it in a way that just like, of course, it makes sense. Yeah, again the. The protector in me goes, well, that's not malice per se because there's an accuracy to it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we say everything we think. Kids do. Yeah. But it it certainly, it has impact. There are no neutral words. I know you're, you're in the world of neuropsychology. Nothing, there is no neutral stimulus in the world. You see an apple, you have a response physiologically. You hear words of malice or even words of, we could call it playful banter, we still have a physiological effect. There is no neutral experience in that way. The good to come out of that though, I guess, was I literally went home that day after the swimming sports and it was an internal chaos Hmm. and I didn't know what to do with it. 
I realized that I had created my own problem hmm. in that I was wildly out of shape and I was probably, I don't know, 50 pounds overweight or something like that. And for the first time in my life ever, I went for a run <laughs> and I went, fuck it. I thought, I can't think my out of my way out of this. I probably went about five kilometers, which is about three miles. I would have walked 85% and jogged 15%. And for me, that was literally the genesis of me starting to <laughs> voluntarily move my body and understand my body a little bit more. And also understand without trying to be too alpha male but understand the value of some discomfort, positive dis discomfort, you know, strategic, intelligent, getting myself into a place where this doesn't feel good. It kind of fucking sucks. Mm. I don't enjoy it, but there's a definite upside to this and it's not reckless and it's not self-destructive, but I'm doing a hard thing and there's a really good byproduct to the hard thing. What what happened for me was the physical change was vast. I lost a lot of weight. I lost about 30 kilograms, which is uh, 66 pounds in about four months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then instead of being picked last and all of those things, I kind of climbed up the ranks and all of that stuff. And it was great. And I ended up being an okay athlete, not a great athlete, but an okay athlete. But what was interesting for me more than the physiological change was what happened in my thinking, which was I started to realize that all the stuff that I, all the self-limiting stuff that I thought about me didn't need to be true. I wasn't deluded. I didn't think I was a fucking superstar or a budding Olympian. Excuse my language, everybody. But I realized that, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not useless. Maybe I'm not destined to come last and everything. Maybe I could be good at stuff. And it kind of opened a metaphoric door in my mind and just a little bit of self-belief and confidence started to creep in, which for me was more powerful than the physical stuff. So there was this transformation that actually was much deeper than the the level of your muscles and the level of your hundred percent. And for me, yeah. I'm fascinated with people. Are, I'm always talking to people about how they think, you know, metacognition, thinking about thinking. Why do you think the way that you think? Where's that belief come from? Where's that idea come from? Did you choose that belief or did you adopt that belief from mum and dad? Mm. Or did you just grow into it? Did, did you critically think about that? And now that's your belief. And does that belief serve you or sabotage you? And I had such limiting, self-limiting thinking and believing it wasn't my potential that was the issue or my possibilities. It was my thinking about my potential because I just thought that I was destined for mediocrity, if that, all round. It's funny, when you do something, when you have an experience or you put yourself in a situation where you might do something tough or unfamiliar or complicated and you get through it, a couple of things happen. One is, well, you did the thing. Well done. You you conquered that. You accomplished that. You created a positive outcome. Well done. That's awesome. But also there's another thing that happens internally, which is you go, oh, shit, if I can do that, what else can I do? Mm. For me, confidence and self-awareness mm. and awareness of how I got in my own way. Mm. Sure, you're not an academic genius. You're not, a, you're not a genetic freak. You're not this. You're not that. And all of that's okay. Mm. You don't need to be. You don't need to be amazing to do some amazing stuff. You don't need to be accept be exceptional. Exceptional literally means 
you're going to do what most people won't do. And the reason that I've done okay with some things is not because I am inherently better because I'm not or inherently exceptional, but because I absolutely will work harder than most people I know to create the outcome I want. Before my podcast, which we two days ago did episode 1200, I did three podcasts that didn't work. So I spent two years recording three different shows. So hundreds of episodes didn't work. And then on the You Project, which is my current show, I did five or 600 episodes losing money. If it's all about making money, which it's not, but if it was as a commercial enterprise, <laughs> we were failing. And it took me until the 600th episode, about three years in, that was after two years of failures with others, that we made a dollar. And now we are the number one educational show in Australia and <laughs> clearly not an overnight success. And everyone that I know would have thrown it in after the first three failures. And in that, I'm not saying I'm a genius because I'm definitely not, but I'm saying if you can not fail, but you can learn, and I know that sounds cliche, but with everything that I've done where I didn't get the outcome that I want, that most people would say, well, that didn't work, you failed. I go, yeah, I understand that thinking because on a level that's true. But hey, I know 10 things now that I didn't know before. Hmm. Because that platform of mediocrity from which I come, it's kind of for me been a superpower in that I'm more driven and I'm okay with not being good. I'm okay with not achieving great results for a while. I'm okay with being the white belt and getting punched in the face and strangled and choked. Because everyone, whatever you do, what any, whatever skill-based thing you start, you're always going to be the white belt and, and you can't be a black belt by Tuesday. So pull your head in step on your ego a bit and and go and get the shit kicked out of you. And in the middle of all of that, there's evolution, development, growth, understanding, awareness, resilience to be, to be gained. Hmm. I think about how terrifying mediocrity is for so many of us. So I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying here. If mediocrity leads to a sense that you aren't important, that you won't stand above the herd of other people, then that means that most likely you will not have your primal needs met of being seen, heard, attended to, witnessed. And for so many of us, that's terrifying. Mm. That this idea that we won't rise above to be seen if we just, if we're satisfied with mediocrity. And I, I, I think I want to go back to one other thing you were saying, which is about self-confidence. And there's this interesting research around self-confidence and in relationship to the body that the more dissatisfied or more uncomfortable we are in our body, or the more dissociated we are, the higher likelihood of a lack of confidence. Mm. So the more safe we feel in our body, and that can come from, like you said, you started running, you started doing other exercises that made you perhaps feel more comfortable, if, if we were using this as an example, the more likelihood for a sense of self-confidence. Mm. And, and it's the linkage here between what we might call embodiment and confidence. Yeah, yeah. Does, does that also resonate in addition to the, you, you really are offering some powerful tools here about. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious is if you look back at those moments and recognize, was there more safety for you to be at home, thus confidence was allowed? What was interesting, I don't know if this answers it, but I think this yeah. is in the ballpark, right? So. All I wanted to do was I wanted to be good enough to be picked, not last. 
I wanted to be seen, as you said. I wanted to be more attractive than I was. I wanted some 15-year-old girl to notice me. I wanted, or whatever. And the funny thing was, we all want validation, approval, recognition, belonging, acceptance, love, connection. We, we all want that, but probably not surprising reasons. I sought that through my body for a long time. So when my body changed, my social status changed. And you go, oh, okay, one plus one equals that, right? Then when I got lean, then when I started to not come last in everything, and then all of a sudden I'm slightly more popular, people know who I am. I'm 15, I've got a girlfriend. Wow, look at me. I'm like a regular human. And then and then that ended up for me, Scott, being, I hate to say it, but it's just my story, something of an obsession with how I looked. Yeah. And then I got into bodybuilding. And then all I wanted to do was be fucking massive and lean and ripped and veins on my eyelids and bloody muscles on my ears. And because again, I still now I was just 22 and insecure. I wasn't 14 and insecure. I was 22 and insecure. And I still wanted approval. And I reckon that went on in some shape or form. I hate to say this. I, I kind of got a bit of self-awareness, but I reckon until I was 35, I was still doing dumb shit. Mm. And still, and I still do dumb shit now, but not the same dumb shit, right? But where I'm I'm this 35-year-old bloke, I'm relatively intelligent. I owned at that stage, I had a hundred staff. I had five different businesses. I was making lots of dough. I was still trying to get approval. And, you know, it's funny. We try and, I think, we try and resolve, this is not a very academic kind of description, but we try and resolve internal issues with external solutions. Yeah. And my body wasn't the problem. And my body was fine. My situation was fine. My income was fine. Everything was fine. But I was trying to get emotional and or psychological stuff dealt with by getting bigger arms or by getting a better car or by getting a 90-inch TV or by getting whatever the fuck I thought it was because I was so wildly unsure of who I was that I was always trying to get my sense of self and self-worth and identity from all the stuff that people could see when what mattered really was the stuff that no one could see. When I talk to people about life now, I talk to them about their life situation, situation, circumstance, environment, house, car, job, money, brand, all that stuff that everyone can see. And then I go, now tell me about your life experience. Tell me about that internal world. Fuck all that other shit. Fuck the show. Fuck the you show. Fuck the persona. Tell me about you. Tell me about the person beyond the persona. Tell me about what you feel, what you think. Tell me about what's going on for you right now. Because I think the external, the physical three-dimensional world is where life happens. I think the internal world is where living happens. And do you find that that's such a hard question for people to answer, mm. to let go of measuring who they are by the external factors, by the by the structures and the systems and the cars and the jobs? I remember... My sister, God bless, like one of the first things she would do when we were in our 20s is she would introduce herself by what she did. The first thing she would say was, I'm a school teacher. And I found that always so interesting that that was such a significant part of her identity. And for me, my job, I didn't care about. Uh, mostly because I was constantly in school, so I didn't have a job. <laughs> it was about what was I interested in in that moment? And neither is right or wrong, but I, but it was interesting. And I, I, I felt so clear when I would watch my sister do that. 
that that's not what I wanted in my life. I didn't want to identify probably why I change jobs now every two years, just you know, to keep people on their toes and keep myself on my toes. But yeah, it, it's, I, I so to go back to the question, is that hard for people to identify what that internal sense of self is that isn't part of that, those external factors? I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. I had a kind of a, a mini meltdown, I reckon, when I was in my early to mid-30s. And things from a, I had three gyms, all making money. I had two other businesses. By most of the normal indicators, I was successful from the outside looking in. I was working on television here in Australia on a national program once a week. I'd written a few books. I was writing for the main newspaper here in Melbourne. I was ticking all these boxes. And I would go to bed and every night, Scott, I would wake up six times and I would have to turn on my lamp, lean over to the bedside table, get my pen and write in the notepad whatever was in my head because I couldn't rest unless I got out of my head and onto the pad because I had so many things to deal with, so many problems to solve, so many things I was overthinking. And I I got up one day and I just had this realization that I was successful and miserable. Hmm. And I'm like, how can I be in the middle of what looks like success? And I'm an overthinker. I'm anxious. I'm not depressed, but I'm in and out of definite emotional peaks and troughs, shitty self-esteem still, all this stuff. I went into work and I said to my then PA who ran my life, I'm going, I'm going to go away for 10 days. Now I never went away for 10 minutes. I was obsessed with everything. I was the control freak. I went to every business every day. I was all over everything. I was an overachiever in that. I just, I was a workaholic. I was everything. Anyway, I went away for 10 days. I didn't take a phone. I didn't take a computer. I didn't take anything. I didn't watch television. I went to a place called Queensland, which is north of where we are, which is absolutely beautiful. Stayed on a place looking at the beach. I didn't, I didn't have a conversation with another human other than to order a coffee, but as in have a conversation for 10 days. I didn't, I because my life was the opposite of isolation, it was always interaction and people and and it was always me being, g'day champ, what's going on? You know, and it's always me talking people up and doing the thing and being Craig. I fucking couldn't stand being alone. 
And I didn't know what that was about. And I, I was so uncomfortable not having attention, not having things to do, not having a to-do list, just being still, just being quiet. And honestly, for the first day or two, the alpha male cried like a fucking baby trying to figure out what that was about. Day three, four, somewhat better. Day five, I started to maybe turn a corner. But I, I had to go and just be with me. My life was kind of Groundhog Day. I just got up every day and did what I did the day before. I think most of us grow up in a paradigm that says success is about what you have and what you earn and what you own and what you do and what people think of you and your stuff. And I had lots of stuff. And I'm like, I've got all this stuff, but I'm fucking miserable. What is that about? And so I just spent 10 days literally on my own. And I was trying to figure out what is the, what is going on with me? Why have I ticked all these boxes? As painful as it is, I encourage people to spend two to three days a year by themselves, like no one. Do not have a conversation. Do not take a phone. Do not look at a computer. Don't even read a book. Take a pen and paper so you can journal if you want to. Be in nature. Take everything that you need to be completely isolated for three days and you will not like it probably, but you will learn a bit about you. I think sometimes we've got to lean into that. Mm. So, yeah, for me, there's been, and I've done stuff like that my whole life where I recognize something in me that's not working and I get curious about it. I came back and I sold all of my businesses except one. <sighs> and I kept, I kept one and I brought in a guy to be a partner. I trained him up. And then I walked away and then I, I still had the business. I had the business till eight years ago, but I went, what do I want? What do I love? And I went, well, I love teaching. I love talking. I love empowering people. I'm not very good at many things, but I think I'm not bad at that. Why don't I do that? And that's where I feel alive. And, and when I'm, even when I'm talking to you on a podcast or when I'm doing my own podcast, I talk to some of the smartest people in the world, including you recently and it's not a job. It's bullshit. I'm like, how do I get to do this thing where I'm talking to people from all over the world? I'm learning. I'm evolving. I have awesome conversations. Now, I love that you're you're going right into what I want to talk to you about today, which is about me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I knew it was coming. I, I knew, knew it was coming. Was coming. <laughs> no. No. Hang no, on, let me you, just start my clock and uh, <laughs> and you, and you're on the clock. Yep. So, in addition to all the other things you do and and you named it, you you're a really well-known motivational speaker and I have been excited and curious and and stirring about motivational speaking for some time and uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get Tony Robbins on the show because I couldn't get him to be motivated enough to be on my show, but I am really glad that you are the runner up for this conversation. I'm ready. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, yeah. How many, how much caffeine and Red Bulls and cocaine does it take to be a motivational speaker? Yeah, no, that's good. So typically <laughs> one to 2,000 milligrams pre-event. Mm -hmm. you know, but again, if you have an arrhythmia like me, you might want to back that off a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Also, you don't want to overload your central nervous system because you're going to downregulate it. And then you're just going to have to have more and more. No, of course, the answer is none, everybody. He's being a dickhead. <laughs> 
<laughs> but there is there is this way of cheerleading people into transformation and it is a an exorbitant amount of energy and and I want to kind of get into the controversy of, of motivational speaking with you because I happy I'm happy to talk about it because I'm not a fan of what people typically think of when they think of motivational it's not I think you probably figured out that's not my thing. That is. That's why I was excited to talk to you about it. There's this, again, there's like this razzle-dazzle. I'm pulling you in. And this isn't to say that this is all motivational speaking, but I, I will say in my own comfort level or my own discomfort around motivational speaking, I was like, I feel like you're telling me it's about my internal motivation but I'm relying on your energy as an external motivation to actually make it happen. This change, this transformation. And there's something discordant about that, that it feels strange to my system to go, is it really about me or is it about you pulling me into something? Mm. I, I don't know. Does that feel right to you when I say that? So I, I often, when people go, you're a motivational speaker, I, I, I get that label. And, and if I'm being transparent, yeah. people seeing me as that gets me work. That's cool. Quick Tony Robbins story. 25 years ago, he comes to Australia regularly, but he came to Australia. And one of my then clients was in love with him and she bought me a ticket. And I'm like, nah, I'm good. Thanks. Anyway, I reluctantly went and I was completely ready to hate him, yeah. which is my my flaw. And uh, I liked him. I liked him. I didn't like the razzle-dazzle. I didn't like the smoke. I didn't, you know, that's not really my vibe, but that doesn't mean that that shouldn't exist. Hmm. But when I, I kind of filtered through the stuff that doesn't resonate with me and I got him out, out of my pre-existing bullshit and expectations of who he was. And I I tuned into some of what he said, a fair bit of what he said really resonated and landed. Whatever you think of Tony Robbins, and I'm not the Tony Robbins fan club or spokesperson, but you don't get there without immense talent and an ability mm. to create rapport and connection and have some insight into the human experience, right? To go in and create an experience is that is part of being a speaker and to build rapport, develop connection, maybe turn on a few light bulbs for people, be a little bit funny, tell a story, make a few people laugh, but hopefully share thoughts and ideas and strategies that might be valuable beyond that hour. And then mm. hopefully that people will do something with. But the problem with motivation in terms of it being a mechanism to growth and change and transformation and improvement is that it's a temporary emotion in terms of what we're talking about. So there's motivation that is the reason that you're doing something, but I'm talking about motivation, the state that we get in. I'm motivated. I'm pumped. I'm excited. Well, when we're reliant on motivation to create real change, we're fucked because motivation comes and goes. So if my behavior is dependent on my ability to do the thing that I need to do to learn, to grow, to improve, to transform if that's dependent on me being motivated, I'm in trouble. So the question that I always ask people is, how productive and proactive and effective can you be when you're not motivated, when you can't be fucked, when you don't want to get off the couch, when it's not fun, when there's no cheer squad, when the, the sun's not shining, the birds aren't singing, the bees aren't buzzing, it's kind of sucks. Because guess what? Life sucks a fair bit. And in the middle of all the suck is you, the author of your own story. So I don't care how brilliant you are when you've got a cheer squad and it's all downhill. I'm interested in what you do when most people would give up. When most people would step down, I want to see you step up. 
a lot of personal development and self-help is about building your best life. I actually think it's about building your best you in the middle Mm. of that life. Because when you are better, forget your life, forget what's going on in your life for a minute. But when you are stronger, more resourceful, more creative, more adaptable, and you've got better cognitive flexibility and fitness, you can navigate life more successfully because you have weaponized yourself to deal with the bullshit. Oof. I'm just going to let the tingles of what you just said <laughs> for a moment. It's, yeah, thank you for saying that. I, I think you articulated exactly what I had been feeling for so long and, and just deconstructed it. There is a contagious excitement. I can get excited right now and I bet I can pull you along, but that doesn't mean you have personally built the foundation or the bridge to walk along with me. Yeah. And, and, and so that is such a, I've seen your talks, your motivational talks. And I, and I actually felt that when you talk is like, oh, you're, you're, you're collaboratively building the bridge. How do we set the stones in front of us? And so the, the energy that you create, that you generated in these talks, I didn't feel like, okay, here we go. We're going to run, 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 run. And then I'm going to say goodbye. And you're still running midair. And then the big fall because there wasn't anything to catch you underneath. Yeah, yeah. I, I always say, Scott, at the end, not every time, but often I'll say at the end, put up your hand if you're more motivated. Every hand goes up typically. Put up your hand if you're, you've identified something you need to do and change. Every hand goes up and, you know, put up your hand if you're a bit excited and pumped. Every hand goes up and I go, well, all that's going to pass probably by tomorrow, maybe <laughs> Tuesday. And by Thursday, you won't remember my name. And by Friday, you will have forgotten almost everything I said. And I say, I tell you this not to be a Debbie Downer, no disrespect to Debbies, but I tell you this because I want you to be practical. I want you to be pragmatic. When you can genuinely build habits or rituals or whatever you want to call them that are ingrained, right? This is not what you do when you're in the zone. No, this is how you are. So when you have habits and behaviors and non-negotiables and rituals which are hardwired into your day-to-day kind of existence, then you don't need to be disciplined because you're on autopilot. You don't need to get motivated because you're on autopilot. So when someone says to me, how do you stay motivated to go to the gym every day? That's a very legit question, but the answer is I don't. I often go to the gym when I can't be fucked. Mm. I often go to the gym not looking forward to it. Often. I don't go, oh, yeah, fuck, yeah, chin-ups today, awesome, squats and deadlifts, yay. While we are emotional creatures and that's not going to stop, we can still build some strategy around our emotion. Knowing that I know me, I know I'm going to get up one day and not want to go to the gym. Cool. What's going to happen on that day? Now, that doesn't mean we, we can't have days off or we can't have bad days or we can't eat a pizza. For me, it comes back to the quality of the questions that we ask. I'm genetically, I'm what's called an endomorph, which I walk past a donut, my ass gets bigger. That's my body type. I can't change that. So I go, all right, well, being a 59-year-old endomorph, Craig, what's the best way for you to eat? And what's the best way for you to have a long health span? Health span, not just lifespan. And so these are the questions that kind of have driven my behaviors and the questions that I ask others. I would love to see the donut to spontaneous ass combustion situation happen. I I don't know if you can send us a video and we'll put it in the show notes or- Dude, I can get- so. (laughs) If there was an Olympics for getting fat- I would be fucking, I'd be the goat. Well, 
if we if we start navigating global warming and in the freeze aspect of that, it's a skill set. <laughs> I could prepare myself for a famine in one month. Wow. Yeah. Well, but let's not talk about dark things. <laughs> so speaking of not talking about dark things, let's talk about controversial things instead. There are concepts in motivational speaking that I found that I, I kind of want to talk about. All right, do we want to debunk this? Do we want to do we want to challenge it? Is it is it actually helpful? And and the first one is believe in yourself and you can do anything. Well, that's bullshit. Next. Well, that's ne- <laughs> Well, we fucking solved that one. Look, I I understand the thinking behind it. Yeah. But okay, well, I'm going to run 100 meters in 9 seconds. No, you're not. No, you're not. I'm going to win a Grammy award with my shit singing. No, you're not. Nope. I'm going to climb up to the top of my house and just fly to the next house. No, you're not. And this is, yeah, you, you bring up a good point. I hate fucking self-help cliches. There are just these things that get wheeled out because they sound nice and they maybe make people feel momentarily better. But one, are they true? A lot of them are not true. Well, and there's a danger to it. It's like, oh, I didn't achieve this. That must mean I don't believe in myself. It's as though that's the cause and effect. When I can believe in myself and still something doesn't work out the way I had hoped or imagined. And and as opposed to turning it around and, and becoming the victim and the culprit simultaneously, I actually go, you said in the beginning, what can I learn? Mm, yeah. And it's, it's a very different mindset than turning, it, turning against yourself based on what you, what you were not able to achieve. All right, next one. Your mindset determines everything and you need to control it. Well, it doesn't determine everything, of course. My mindset doesn't determine the fucking weather. It doesn't determine the government or the traffic lights. Or it's the, but if we're talking about our personal reality, I think, I, I, I like this. I like where this is going. We spoke kind of before about what's happening externally and what's happening internally. Mm-hmm. So if we think about my external world, for want of a better term, but an understandable term, my external world is my situation, my circumstance, my environment, my family, the people, the government, the weather, stuff, all that external stuff. And my internal world is thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, beliefs, values, passion, pain, pleasure. And so I I think I think of the mind as almost the data processing center that's filtering the world. There's the thing that happens, and then there's my story about the thing that happens. If right now, for example, I'm sitting on this podcast and I'm on the podcast and I believe that Scott is hating me right now, let's hope that's not true. But let's say that My story about the podcast is, in this moment, I'm crashing and burning. Hmm. They don't like this brash Australian. Scott doesn't like it. This is not working. I thought it would be okay. Now, if this is my inner dialogue, despite what's actually going on, which I think is we're having a good conversation, but if I believe, if my thinking is I'm crashing and burning, this is shit, he doesn't like me, they're never going to air this, blah, 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 then all of a sudden- that thought translates into physiology, which is elevated heart rate, breathing, adrenaline, cortisol, sympathetic nervous system. And now just because of a thought, not because of the practical reality of what's actually happening, but because of a thought, I'm now in a stress state. I'm now anxious. My blood pressure is elevated. My breathing is quicker. And I created that. Now that response is a response to my thinking, not a response to the situation. 
I remember going years ago to one of my friends as a surgeon and he asked, well, I'm fascinated with all that shit, right? He said, come to work. Anyway, we, I don't know if you could do this now. This was a decade ago, but I went, suited up, scrubbed up and stood way at the back of the room and basically watched him cut people open and do incredible shit. And I'm there and I'm equal parts terrified, mesmerized. Now he's cutting people open and singing. He's just quietly singing and so calm and so relaxed and so in flow. And I'm now, if I want anyone operating on me, it's him, by the way. I wasn't even doing the operation, clearly, thankfully for the patient, but I was borderline traumatized. And this guy who was doing the operation, and I'm like, wow, two people in the same room having a completely different experience. So that's that having an awareness of the window through which we view the world and process the world and understand the world. And when you can recognize, one, the world, and then two, your window, and then three, your response, you've opened up a a higher level of awareness. Hmm, I love that. And I love the idea of bring your friend to work day. There's, There's something really actually kind of magical about it to really shift your perspective of the world. I get it. My babysitter growing up was... VHS tapes of orthopedic surgeries. My parents just put those on. I was either going to become a doctor or Dexter and still undecided, still undecided. Is it bad that I love Dexter? I shouldn't say that. (laughs) It's a great show. Maybe not the remake last season, but it's a great show. Yeah. I remember in school, I was eating a salad while there was a dissection going on. I wasn't in the room, there's glass. And I was eating a salad and someone leaned over to me and they're like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, it's dinner time. What do you mean? That perception of reality, the stimulus that's there isn't disturbing for one person, me, and, and for another like you. It's, it's quite the mindset, the story, the narrative, the perceptual filter really changes the reality of the situation. I grew up in the country, Scott, and started riding motorbikes when I was a kid. I still have four motorbikes now. 90% of my commuting and travel is on a bike, not in a car. And a couple of years ago, I took a reluctant friend for a ride to allay their fears. It was very sedentary. And I, I was thinking, it was a guy, I was thinking, his, his, this is totally going to fix him, right? Because he was paranoid and terrified, but he trusted me. And anyway, we got where we were going. We were going to stop, have a coffee 20 minutes away and then ride back. He wouldn't get back on the bike. He got an Uber. Here's my experience. I'm on the front. This is fun. It's a beautiful day. Birds are singing, bees buzzing, sun is shining. We're cruising. We're not going fast. There's a few sweepy, nice bends. It's all good. I'm a good rider. We're on a good bike. He's as safe as you can be on a bike. He's safe. We get there. No dramas. He's fucking terrified. His heart rate's 300. He's white. He's like, and I, it's funny. Here's this guy on the front of the bike having one experience, doing the exact same thing. And a guy on the back of the bike is having a completely different experience. And it ain't because of the bike. And it ain't because of anything other than how that person processes that experience in real time. And I completely understand it. And he wouldn't get back on. And he goes, you didn't do anything wrong. I get it. He goes, I cannot do that. He goes, I don't understand how you do that. And he got an Uber home. I'm like, righto. This probably brings us to our next potentially controversial motivational 
cliche-ish topic, which is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Grit and determination is the key. I think definitely dealing with adversity and leaning into discomfort can be advantageous. I think you've got to be intelligent about that. There's hard good and there's hard bad. Mm. There's discomfort that's destructive and discomfort that's productive. So you think about here's a metaphor or here's an analogy, me being an exercise scientist, blah, blah, blah. You go, what's the idea of getting strong in a gym? Well, you literally work against resistance. It's called progressive resistance training, progressive overload. How do you build strength? Well, you get uncomfortable. You literally get uncomfortable and there's biological adaptation, which is called hypertrophy, strength. You build muscle, you build strength, you build power, you build speed, endurance, whatever whatever the the fitness variable is. So you go and you do something hard and the byproduct of doing that hard thing in an intelligent, progressive way over time is that you now live in a body that works better that is stronger, that is bigger, smaller, leaner, whatever it is that you did to it. You need to be careful about how you apply that thinking because you Mm. can definitely fuck yourself up. So, Mm. And I think if you're a person who you don't know where the line is, which is quite a few people, I've got mates, male and female friends, who are too tough for their own good. And I've worked with a lot of athletes where I have to go stop training. I want you to have two days off. And it's like I'm saying, don't breathe. Don't breathe until Friday. It's like, yes, you are mentally tough. You are physically tough. You have a a great attitude, but you have no fucking balance. And your relationship with exercise or your relationship with food or your relationship with pain or whatever it is, is borderline unhealthy. And so I think sometimes if you're one of those people that you want to be a high performer, and by that I mean just getting the most out of you. I don't mean being an Olympian or a, an astronaut. Sometimes it's good to have someone like Dr. Scott Lyons. It's, uh. it's good to have someone else in the process who isn't you, who's objective. Because here's the other thing. You can't be objective about you because you're you. <laughs> Your entire life is subjective. <laughs> I can be more objective about you than you. And you can be more objective about me than me because I'm looking at the world through the Craig window. And that means the Craig bias and the Craig beliefs and values and expectations. I remember learning about the Craig bias in grad school. It's a, it's a pretty gnarly one. In 2019, they kind of discovered it. They're still unpacking it. There's more work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> mainly on, mainly mainly on, on the Craig. <laughs> this show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools of transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever. They have an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. There's this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into profound insight, and then you get to plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. What? I mean, if that's not deep and inventive, I don't know what is. 
If you're someone who desires to live a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Amala. Amala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com, and use the code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. I, I want to emphasize, it's, it's because we think about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It, it's not the adversity and the fact that you survived an adversity that makes you stronger, it is what have you learned? What, how have you grown? Where was the growth process? Where was the ability to metabolize? And sometimes adversities don't make us stronger. Mm. They hurt us and they harm us and they keep us locked away. Mm. Just because we had the adversity doesn't mean we grew from it. And, that's, and that is okay too, to normalize that not all shit storms are have to be an opportunity for development and growth sometimes it's just fucking awful yeah true i mean you've probably worked with and i've worked with quite a few yeah. people who are dealing with a version of ptsd yeah trust me that trauma didn't help them yeah and it, and it's not the question to be like oh you lost this person in your life what did you learn from it how are you a stronger person because of it? That's such an inappropriate question to ask someone. Yeah, yeah. And yet it is, I have seen it as part of even in, in some motivational circles. It's like, take this tragedy, flip it immediately into what have you succeeded because of it? What have you learned from it? Mm. As opposed to how is it still residing in your body? What else of that experience might want to be known and seen and moved and metabolized? Yeah. And in that whole healing process, what meaning making is emerging as opposed to just trying to go for the meaning making from the, the impact itself of the adversity? Yeah, 100%. And I also think that there's this, often there's this underlying thinking that, oh, this happened to you or this is how you should respond. This is how you should deal with grief. Here, here are the four steps. Just do those. Yeah. It, it's so fucking stupid that, that we think that a hundred different people need to be treated the same way. You and I could eat the same food, do the same training program, have the same amount of sleep, take the same supplements. We're not going to respond, recover, look, feel, function the same because I'm not you and you're not me. So understanding that that everybody responds different, even with me, when I'm writing someone an exercise program, which is not very often these days, but I've written tens of thousands, it's still an educated guess. Yeah. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. There are so many variables. I, I understand your goals. I'm looking at your body. I've done some testing. I've got, I've got a bit of an insight into where you're at physiologically based on what you want to do. I'm going to write this program based on 40 years of experience and some pretty good knowledge and blah, blah, blah. It's still a guess. It's yeah. a very educated guess, but it's still a guess. I yeah. don't know. Lots of experts would like to tell you, oh, I know what the outcome will be. No, you fucking don't. You don't know what the outcome will be. And that's your ego. And by the way, you don't fix people. Fuck, I hate it when experts go, I change lives. No, you don't. The only life you can change is your own. You might influence lives. 
But the only person who can change Scott Scott's life is Scott. I might help you, support you, encourage you, but only you can do the work. Only you can have the courage. Only you can have the light bulbs in the awareness. I can support you, cheer you on, love you, encourage you, but I can't do the work. Only you can do that. So I think, and I've digressed and I've got on my high horse, but fuck experts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thank you for saying that. I, I agree. And, and it's like, we can't fix people. We can't heal people. And, and, it, and, it, and it is a painful truth. Whether you're a therapist or a teacher or a parent, it is incredibly painful, challenging, sad, helpless to watch someone in pain, mm. to watch someone struggle. And, and the idea that you can fix them, that you can heal them, that you can correct all the circumstances yeah is is us trying to actually gain control over our helplessness which is selfish yeah and and, and i'm not saying selfish even in a bad way but it is selfish because we can't we are distracting from the resources of support of actually helping someone heal and fix themselves and when i say i'm the answer i'm empowering me not you yeah yeah i'm telling you (laughs) You need a bit more of me. Fucking hell, what? I'm not the solution to anything for anyone. I'm a resource and I might be valuable to you or I might not. All I do is share thoughts and ideas and strategies and stories and I try to help and serve and connect. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But ultimately, the, the listener, the client, the patient, whatever the scenario they're going to go away and do the work and hopefully with encouragement and support. But ultimately, it, it still comes down to the person. When you help someone, there's this, there's this interesting phenomenon that I experienced, Craig, and I don't, I'm curious if you did too, which is people come up to you and they're like, thank you. And I, and I used to never say, you're welcome as a therapist. I would say, thank you for doing that work. Mm. And, and they're like, no, 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 thank you. You were the one who did the work. You're the one who guided me. And, and it's, it's easily intoxicating to start to take on this sort of godliness of power because people often want to project the power back onto you, the support, the resource. And, and, and it's harder for people to take ownership, whether that's a cultural thing of, of going, I am the power and the seed of transformation, me personally, if that's so hard for us to digest, then of course we're going to project it on that it must be someone else. It must be this religious figure or this mm. this figure, this motivational interviewing figure or this coach or this therapist. What I loved about meeting you and talking with you the other day was you know, you're this highly educated, good-looking bastard, annoyingly good-looking, charismatic, all that shit. But, but what I really loved was your authenticity and we were talking about your own trials and tribulations and frailties and issues and challenges. And that's why I love you. That's why I connect with you. That's why I respect you. You're not on a high horse talking down. And and the funny thing is that I think a lot of people who try to be experts and try to be regarded as an expert, especially in the personal development space, if only they would realize that that creates more disconnection than connection. Mm. When I tell people sincerely, I'm a work in progress, I get things wrong often, I fuck up, I fall into ego, 
I still look for approval. I still want people to like me and love me. I'm still wildly insecure at times. I still feel like an imposter at times. And, and that's not that's not me just saying stuff. That's true. But at the same time, for me anyway, self-doubt and confidence in a way can coexist. Because while the fat 14-year-old is sometimes going, this is the day that you're going to fuck up, when I'm standing at the side of a room waiting to walk up to a thousand people, there's still that, yeah, this will probably be the day where you'll fuck up. But then that's the emotion. But the but the intellect says, yeah, but you've done this thousands of times and you're quite good at this. And they pay you a lot for this. So there's that. I think these things can coexist. And for me, a little bit of insecurity, for me anyway, it ain't a bad thing because it keeps mm. me grounded. The moment that I start to think I'm really good, then I'm going to worry. <laughs> That's an interesting mindset to hold. And, yeah. and not in a self-loathing way, right? I don't yeah, mean that yeah. oh, I'm shit, I'm a piece of shit. I don't mean that. I just mean, you know what? I meet people pretty much every day who are way better or smarter than me at stuff. And I'm like, yeah, wow. Sometimes I'll go into a room, I'm the smartest. Sometimes I'll go into the room, I'm the dumbest. Then the next room, still the dumbest. I want to be in that room. Hmm. I want to be in the room where I'm going to grow. I really hear how that's such a, an internal inspiration for you in that way. Mm. I mean, I hear it through your stories. of it, it's When we're talking about internal and external motivation and going back and saying so often motivational speaking, it's, it's this false internal, I'm giving you internal motivation, but it's me on the external outside really cheering you on to stepping forward. And we know from all the research that long-term change and transformation can only truly come from internal motivation. Mm. And I think you're giving such a prime example of what internal motivation sounds like. Where do I get to grow? That, that's such a, a fire for you, it sounds like. And also, I think as a podcaster, as a therapist, as a, an exercise physiologist, as a corporate speaker, as a water, anyone who has an audience, be it one or a million, you want to connect with people. You, you, want, you want to be able to genuinely build rapport and engagement. You do that by being a bunch of ways, but one of the ways is by being authentic. And I can tell stories and I can make people laugh and I can blow them away with stats and data. I can do all of that. That's just skill. Mm. But ultimately, people want to know who you are beyond the skill, who you are beyond the Craig show. Yes, you're a pretty good speaker. You're a bit funny. You're a good storyteller. That's all good. But I want to see the person underneath the stage persona. I want to meet that person. And when you bring that person as well, something special happens. Yeah. I think this brings us to our next. We have a couple more and then we'll go get some donuts. The next one is, if it's got to be, it's up to me. That's a, a very motivational speaking cliche line. So it's it's almost ultra radical responsibility. I think for the most part, I don't disagree with that. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm very much about take responsibility for what you're doing and don't do and be, be honest, be but there's a big gap between self-awareness and self-loathing. I need to get better at that is different to I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Everyone likes the idea of feedback till they get feedback. I'm completely open-minded as long as you agree with me. Yeah, I, of course I want your feedback. Just tell me what I want to hear. At the same time, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Yeah, we need, I need support. I need help. I need, I can't do all the stuff. Melissa, who we spoke to momentarily before we started rolling, 
Yeah. She's one, she she's worked for me for 12 years. And I'm not even being self-deprecating when I say she's smarter than me, literally smarter than me. Oh, I've met her. I know. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I know. I know you know. She's smarter than me too. Oh, dude. I go, I often think if it wasn't for her, none of the st- almost none of the stuff that I am doing right now would be happening. I'm always aware that I'm part of something bigger than me. Yeah. in terms of the expanse of my business and the, all of the stuff that I do. But personally, I think that depends on the thing we're talking about. If yeah. it's just a you, if it's a trait, a habit, a behavior, a, a, a personal thing, I think a lot of that is, yes, it's mostly you still with a bit of help. But then if it's something bigger than me, if I'm going to build a brand business, if I'm going to impact thousands of people, if I'm, I'm going to have a really big reach and do good stuff and have an impact, well, then it ain't all about me, that's for sure. Yeah. We don't operate in a vacuum. No. And and it's important to recognize if I want this, it has to be all me. And it's just not the way we, whether we recognize or not, along the way to the path of achieving whatever it is you want, you are interacting with other people. So it's not just you. Their interactions might lift you up. It might take you down. And it does play a part. It, it's important, I agree, to highlight yourself as a central figure because the other way is just victim mentality where it's like you're, you're not taking any responsibility. Nobody wants to be a failure. Everybody wants to be successful. And I think it's a good thing for people to think about, and we can't go into it in depth, but even just to open the door on, if all of our audience right now is in front of us and we said, put up your hand if you want to be, don't overthink it, but if you want to be successful, every hand goes up. Yeah. And then my question would be, well, what is that for you? And to think about truly what that means for you and why it means that. And to think about, and there's no judgment in this, it's just success is different things for different people. What is my version of success? I realized early that part of that for me was not having a job. I'm a terrible employee. The last time I had a job, I was 26, which was 33 years ago. So I realized that part of success for me is me running my own thing, doing what I want to do the way that I want to do it. And sometimes I'll fail and fuck up and fall down and sometimes I'll win and I'm good with all of that. And there's no holiday pay and there's no sick pay and there's no, and I might make a heap next month or none next month and all of that is okay. But I think figuring out Rather than rather than aligning with some script that you've been fed or some version of success, this is what success is. And for me, success is more about what's happening internally. No, I love that. And it feeds right into the next point as well, which I'll say in a moment. But it's true. And I just want to normalize also the struggle between our... I really want to invite everyone who's listening to pause and ask yourself that question. What does success mean? feel like, look like, taste like, smell like for me. And I, I have that answer personally, but it doesn't mean that there isn't an external voice that doesn't come and pick fights with it. Mm. I, I, I have a very clear idea of what success for, let's say, my book would be like for me. And then I hear numbers and I was like, oh, oh, there's a, there's a, a war almost sometimes between what success is for other people for me or when I project it out onto other things that are outside of me 
or that are not truly aligned for me. And then, and then what success feels like, tastes like, smells like, that does feel really true to my values. I just thought of this and I know we're winding up, but this is a really fundamental question, but it's so powerful. And the question is what really matters? What really, really for you? What really, really matters? And I'll tell you a 60 second story. Three years ago, I was training with one of my best friends in the world. We train every day together. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. No, he was busy. <laughs> he was busy that day. He's kind of built like Chris Hemsworth. He was a pro bodybuilder, Mr. Australia, competed overseas, all that shit. Anyway, we were training in the gym. He did a set of chin-ups, came down to the floor and and kind of stumbled. And I thought he was having a seizure. Mm. And without being too melodramatic, he had a cardiac arrest. Doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and literally dead. I'm grabbing him as he's kind of stumbling, thinking he's having a fit. And then he falls to the ground just face down. So he weighs 100 kilos, 220 pounds. So but it, I tell you what is fucking amazing is how strong you are when you have to be. Hmm. So I flipped him over like a fucking pancake and I started working on him. I started doing CPR on him straight away. And, and But he was dead. For, he's all right. He recovered. He was dead for 17 minutes. Oh my and God. let me tell you, when you're working on your best friend who's dead and you're trying to make him not dead, everything comes screaming into perspective. And all the shit that you think matters, it doesn't. And all the shit that you obsess about and the bullshit and just, it, it was funny how that 17 minutes felt like 17 hours. I worked on him for 11 minutes. The paramedics got there then. They worked on him for a further six before they could get him back. And I know this is melodramatic, but it's literally just a part of my life. And I've had lots of moments in my life which have been mind-blowing, maybe six. That was one of them. And it completely changed the way that I thought about life and values and what is important and what isn't important. And I know that is a dramatic example, but it's a true example. And you go, what actually fucking matters to you really? Does yeah. that, is that thing that you are obsessed about and getting edge? Is it really? Is that really a big deal? Or are you making that a big, does that really, really matter to you? So I think that, I don't know, for me, that that stuff that happens in life, I'm really fortunate in that I've worked with people in prison. I've worked for years. I worked as the director of health and wellness for an addiction treatment facility for three years, working with addicts and alcoholics. I work with, I currently help quite a lot of people who've got severe disabilities. And me working with those people Scott is a blessing because it gives me a perspective I can't have without that. And and when when Mark died and and then he 17 minutes later was not dead. I think sometimes it's in those moments of life where we find a level of clarity that sometimes we struggle to have. Yeah, that's such a first it's that's such an oh, terrifying experience yeah. and i when you said 17 minutes craig and and this I, I this is a little deviation to the point of what you were saying and my 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 internal thoughts was wow you stayed and 17 minutes i i have been in situations like that they don't stay that long they don't mm. continue they don't persevere they don't stay with the 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 possibility of something changing and I, and I think it speaks to you 
in particular about holding space for the possibility of change? Well, mate, I'm certainly glad he's here. <laughs> I trained with him last night. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Craig, this has been inspirational, motivational, without the crock of shit that comes with it. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. It's an honor. Thank you so much. Can you tell people where to get a hold of you or how to ignore you? So I have a podcast called The You Project. Which is pretty great. I have another podcast called Life, which is just a daily installment of me talking shit for 10 minutes or so, just me, no guests. And on Instagram, I am at Whiteboard Lessons, all one word, Whiteboard Lessons. And yeah, all the other, just Google me. You'll find me. I'm around. He is. He is. And you have all your books. Uh, there's a one book title that I just, what is it called? Pull Your Finger Out? Uh, there's actually a story around that. So in Australia, pull your finger out means get the fuck on with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and the funny, oh, I don't know. I know we're winding up. So I wrote a book called Stop Fucking Around. It was potentially the first fuck book or one of the first fuck books. You were an originator of fuck titles. Yeah. You're welcome, yeah. world. Hey, world, you're welcome. <laughs> that I self-published that and that sold really well. In Australia, a bestseller is 10,000. I think it was 55,000, 60,000, wow. which is in a little country, yeah. well, big country, little population. That's pretty good. And then Penguin, who everyone knows, who are a big, the second biggest publisher in the world, they said, we want you to do another version of that. And I said, sure. So I spent eight months. I wrote, I wrote seven days a week for eight months. Hmm because there was a deadline, 80,000 words. It's a much better book than the other one, but they called it that, and I hated the title, and they know this. I hated the title. I went, the title's not going to work. And they're like, oh, no, this is what we do. There was a whole team of fucking marketing people and research, and I sat at a meeting at the Penguin HQ with 14 people and me, and there was the grand unveiling of the cover, and I'm like, oh, fuck, because I didn't know, right? And I said, I hate it. And they were all shocked and hurt. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't like it. And they're like, oh, well, it's tested really well. I'm like, whatever. The funny thing is that book is a better book, a much better book, much bigger book. And that was with Penguin. And that had, I did probably 70 media interviews, blah, blah, blah. And I think it sold in total, which is still not terrible, but about 9,000 compared to the other one, which sold 50 plus and with no marketing, no branding, no distribution initially. And so but, it's but, funny. And that for me, that speaks also to psychology, how people process stuff. Yeah. Let that be a lesson to everyone. Toss the word fuck in your book title and you got a bestseller. Just ask Mark Manson. <laughs> All right, mate. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUsed.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And you know what? Show us some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today. Mm-hmm.